Welcome to Beltmore. Su- <laughs> the Biltmore? <laughs> Beltware. It's new. <laughs> All comments and opinions in this podcast are those of its participants and do not in any way reflect an opinion of the U.S. government or the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The days of science taking a back seat. So come to America. The ideology are open. Where you can innovate, create, and build. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome to Beltway Science, where we have scientists talking public policy. I'm Laura Van Berkel, a social psychologist placed at the National Science Foundation. I'm Ben Isaacoff. I'm a physicist, and I work in Congress. I'm Sujati Imani. I'm a former chemist, and I'm now at the Department of Energy. I'm Asa Rubin. I'm a pathologist, and I now work at the Department of Defense. Last night, a gunman opened fire on a large crowd at a country music concert in Las Vegas, Nevada. He brutally murdered more than 50 people and wounded hundreds more. It was an act of pure evil. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, Beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. As a country, we have been through this too many times. Whether it's an elementary school in Newton or a shopping mall in Oregon or a temple in Wisconsin or a movie theater in Aurora or a street corner in Chicago, these neighborhoods are our neighborhoods and these children are our children. Hard to believe, hard to believe with respect to the synagogue in California near San Diego and uh, we're doing some very heavy research. We'll see what happens, what comes up. At this moment, it looks like a hate crime. Our nation is shocked and saddened by the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech today. A school filled with innocent children and caring teachers became the scene of terrible violence. We've become numb to this. We talked about this after Columbine and Blacksburg, after Tucson, uh, after Newtown, after Aurora, after Charleston. We do know that we must do more to reach out to our children and teach them to express their anger and to resolve their conflicts with words, not weapons. We must also work together to create a culture in our country that embraces the dignity of life that creates deep and meaningful human connections. At some point, we as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. We don't have all the facts, but we do know that, once again, innocent people were killed in part because someone who wanted to inflict harm had no trouble getting their hands on a gun. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 6,309 deaths from gun violence in 2019 alone, and 12,136 injuries. In the news, we often hear about mass shootings, of which there have been 173 this year alone. But in reality, these incidents represent a minority of gun violence. 
The numbers of people killed and injured that we list by gun violence also do not include the mental health injury that affects survivors, family, and the community in general. Although the majority of Americans, 57% according to a 2018 Pew Research Center study, think that gun laws should be stricter, there has not been much movement in legislation to curb this violence. Some of the gridlock is surely due to entrenched partisan attitudes, but there is also continuing debate over what the nature of of the gun violence problem is and what the best evidence-based solution is to fix it. So today, we'll be talking about the science of gun violence. How does the federal government gather information about gun violence to reach evidence-based solutions? So, Ben, do you want to jump in here about the the Dickey Amendment and legislation on gun violence? Sure. So, in 1996, there was an amendment added to the Omnibus Spending Bill, so just the government's budget for the year. Uh, This amendment is called the Dickey Amendment, and it stated that none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the CDC may be used to advocate or promote gun control. And actually, in that same bill, Congress earmarked $2.6 million from the CDC's budget, which was the exact amount that had previously been allocated to the agency for firearms research the previous year. Uh, and, and that was specifically related to traumatic brain injury. So this amendment was lobbied for by the NRA, and it's frequently in uh, discussions around gun violence research referred to as a ban on gun violence research. It's not a ban on gun violence research. Language says that the CDC can't uh, use federally allocated dollars to advocate for gun control uh, to advocate or promote for gun control. Yeah. So these are so it's a slightly different, but it is still uh, you know definitely trying to cut the the intention was to cut down on the CDC researching gun violence. Yeah. So it's not just that they can't use the research for advocacy, but the budget funding also went with it. And I I think from what I understand, I'm not at the CDC, of course, so my knowledge is pretty limited. Um, it seems like people were took that. Um, guidance, I guess we'll call it, the guidance that they can't advocate for, for gun control, um, to be, be kind of strict, that they were afraid that anything they did on guns could be interpreted that way. And so they just sort of uh, opted to maybe avoid gun violence research rather than get into the political fire and trying to um, not violate this amendment and this rule. Yeah. And so even though it is not literally a ban on gun violence research at the CDC, it definitely had a chilling effect on gun violence research that persists to this day. And I, I want to take a step back and think about what the effect, kind of like what is happening when the government or when somebody in the government bans research on a subject as a way of promoting their agenda on that subject. The concept is that they're preventing us from gathering new knowledge and new understanding on this subject, gun violence. And the goal, their goal, is that this is they're they're breaking a link in the chain to try and get to gun uh, advocacy, gun control. But it's if you st- if you think about that, it's crazy. They're trying to prevent our ability to understand and know about the world. I think this is uh, it's really Orwellian, frankly. It's like gaslighting. It's like saying people are having some experience, but the government can't know about the experience, and because we can't know about it, then we can't do anything about it. It's it's really chilling, in my opinion. To go off that, it's actually repeated again and again in history, right? So whatever the particular governing entity is, whether it be a religious organization or a uh, even even if it's a dictatorship, an authoritarian regime, they can just tell you what is and what isn't. And I think that that same attitude can inspire so many of the kind of conspiracy theories on one side or the other, right, about... For example, like people saying that 
oh, the government has banned gun violence research. No, it's not really banned, but the way it could be interpreted, fed, feds who are doing the research are kind of afraid of, well, can this be interpreted? Can this not? Is my job at risk? Therefore, I'm not going to talk about it. So I think that, you know, it's it's an interesting lesson in history, I guess, repeating itself in subtle and more and more nuanced ways in our in our present culture. Yeah. And I think the thing is, it's like it's fair to have a debate, to have different opinions on what we should do about something. Um, like, should we have more gun control or should we have less gun control? Like, it's OK to have a debate and have different opinions. I, but I think that there is a widespread perception. It's definitely my opinion that it's not OK to like really to prevent facts from being out in the open. Mm -hmm. That seems like a really different kind of thing to me. Yeah, I mean, it's as we're discussing today, we need to know what gun violence is and what causes it and when people are at risk in order to be able to have policies around it. And so if you prevent us from knowing about gun violence, then how can you design an effective policy? How are you supposed to um, design an intervention that'll prevent or will stop things um, if we don't um, yeah, if we don't have the data to back it up, um, you're just kind of shooting in the dark or, you know, inertia. You're just not going to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So why even bother. And, and I think these kind of concepts are really key to the uh, concern and energy in the scientific community after Donald Trump's election. So the science march was really about fears that the Trump administration would tamp down on what, mostly climate research, but science in general. And so I think, yeah, again, as Sujata was saying, like, this is a move that keeps happening over and over and over again. And I, I think it's really not okay. Yeah, I mean, just even the Dickey Amendment, so that was passed in 1996, but recently similar language was put in NIHs, the National Institutes of Health funding bill, um, so that they they started a gun violence research um, program, I believe in 2012, after the Sandy Hook shooting, um, and so they weren't necessarily doing the research in the same way that the Centers for Disease Control, um, the CDC is, but they were funding research on it. And then language got inserted into their funding bill, very similar to the Dickey Amendment that they can't advocate for or um, for gun control. And so even though we think of the that the CDC, quote unquote, ban is happening a while ago, it's still that it's kind of a playbook that's being used again and again to try to limit um, the research in this area. What might be a reason for the feds not to get into this research? It, would it be better if the feds didn't get involved in this gun violence research and then left it to private entities or foundations to do it? Is I don't know what was in the minds of the people writing those amendments, but and I don't I don't personally agree with them. I'm just trying to think through what are the you know, maybe this is better served by the public. Maybe the public will trust the data more if it comes from some private, you know, private entity or, you know, nonprofit entity. Well, but it's a, I think part of the reason that, that first of all, there have been private entities that have sprung up around this. There's um, the Gun Violence Archive is a great source. And I think Mother Jones tracks um, shootings. But it's also a challenge for private entities to track this data because they don't have the same access that the federal government does to police reports and to hospital reports. Um, it's a it, there I would think would be privacy concerns more so than sharing within the government. But what about an outside entity? Yeah, what about through grant funding? 
like, are we allowed to have grant funding around this research? And that way you're granting it out maybe to a foundation or something like that to do the research. And that then, then they actually get the, you know, uh, the IBRs or whatever they need, mm-hmm. sorry, the IRBs or the HIPAA releases to get access to this information. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've, some that does occur. NSF has some grants on gun violence. Um, NIJ has specific National Institutes of Justice, I should say. NIJ has um, specific calls. Um, and the NIH, this was a specific gun violence program that they had with targeted grants for it before it kind of got shut down by this added language. Um, but I'm not sure if that means they can't fund any gun violence research or if just this like kind of targeted, this is a priority kind of program is what was really affected by it. My, my guess is that um, this uh, this uh, kind of effective ban, the Dickey Amendment, you know, not an actual ban, but kind of does have a chilling effect, What would be interpreted by the feds at the CDC as applying to grants they give externally as well. That's my guess. I does CDC, sure. is CDC a grant awarding yeah. institution? Grant grants, yeah. They? Not, not, uh, they're like NIH, that they have a mix of both uh, internal and external research. Maybe we can use this as a touch point to get into how the government tries to track gun violence. And specifically, the Department of Education does collect data on school shootings. So National Public Radio um, has an article where they investigated the Department of Education's report on school shootings. And um, they found that the data reported was incorrect. So they went back to the schools that had been listed in this report and they asked them about their school shooting um, incidents. And they found that the Department of Education actually had like vastly overestimated the number of school shootings, which is kind of surprising because if you hear about the government collecting gun violence research, you might think that they're actually, you know, trying to suppress it in some ways is kind of the, the narrative that's out there. Um, but they actually found that there were a lot of incidents reported that never happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what, one of so, the insane ones I thought that was in there is that the question was kind of asking about firearms or explosives. First of all, why would you put firearms and explosives in the same different. sentence? Yeah. You know, so, so the person who's reporting might be talking about, you know, someone blowing up a firecracker and it's coming under the same category as firearms, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one way of like conflating two things that probably should have been on two different lines of the survey. The other thing is that some communities who've never experienced any gun, like bullet guns that are going to pierce and kill people potentially, sort of violence. There was a comment in there in the article that talked about whether paintball guns in a paintball gun incident you know prize of high school seniors like goofing around on the last day of school would be considered a firearm and i was thinking to myself yeah i can totally see how a small community who's never had an incident might think a paintball gun is a pretty bad thing because it could you know leave a welt on someone or something and they could list that they listed that as like a firearm i think (laughs) yeah i mean there's some like some of it is like a kid took a picture with a gun and so there was no shooting, nothing actually right. happened, but they still might have reported it or some states require they report gun and knife incidents. And so when they reported to the federal government, they may have reported um, knife violence in yeah. addition to gun violence. And, and even some of it ended up on the wrong line in the yeah, survey. Yeah, that was the one in Cleveland, yeah. I think, right? There was one for Cleveland and I, I took that personally because I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> and, you know, how can we expect an average person to maybe know whether if a child is carrying a 
toy gun, is that considered a firearm or not? When the Cleveland police couldn't figure out if a toy gun was a firearm when they shot Tamir Rice. You know what I'm saying? So they don't even have clear definitions when they're explaining it. So I just, I thought that was nuts, but it's kind of ironic that it was a Department of Education (laughs) (laughs) survey. It's uneducated survey. Well, I just want to I just want to generalize it just for a moment um, that I mean, if you look at many statistics when it comes to gun violence, they are very often uh, predicated on self-reporting things. Mm-hmm. So if you look at things like just gun ownership, just how many people have guns and who are they? There is no registry for that. There's virtually no way of actually knowing that. So the t- I've, I've found two primary ways of doing it. One of them is surveys, which is self-reporting yeah. and people are free to not report and, you know, whatever. Um, so that's a question that people have uh, issues with with that one, and, and then the other way we we can get into later is using uh, suicide rates, but um, which is more definitive, but it is by proxy. So there's a question there. Um, but if you look at things like that, if you look at like so we were talking before about gun violence, right? And so let's say someone you know breaks into my house and they run away, right? Now the police come. Well, I may not tell them that I happen to have a gun. So that was a gun incident technically, but it wasn't reported because I don't have to. And it's easier for me to not say, well, I don't, it's easier to to not say you have a gun because if you do have a gun, then they're going to start looking into you and blah, blah, blah. So there's a possibility that people don't actually report all all gun crimes. So, I mean, not not just this one, but in general, this is an issue that comes up when you look at gun statistics in general. Yeah, and it's um, I mean, it's a problem in general that it's self-report, and it's also there are other ways of looking at it. So I believe the CDC um, tries to look at hospitalization rates. So mm-hmm. that's probably mm-hmm. a good way to determine who died or was injured by gunshot wound. Is right? They're probably going to end up well. well at depends. A well, it depends yeah. if they were criminally <laughs> shot or not. Yeah, and things like that. They might try to yeah avoid hospitals too. Yes. But they also, I'm, from what I understand, they can't possibly look at every single hospitals. Right data and it would also be a challenge to get you know HIPAA and all that kind of privacy protections to necessarily share that data I think well no I actually, I, th- I think for gunshots they are automatically reported okay. I don't I don't think you yeah. can not yeah, report I, a gunshot yeah. wound well um, I um from what I read it seemed like they sampled maybe just like a like a hundred hospitals yeah. that were considered yeah, representative it was it's yeah. just a cross sampling and actually the gunshot reports don't actually come from all hundred they come from roughly 66 hospitals or something because only 66 of the ones that they sample actually take that data specifically Mm -hmm. maybe they they categorize it in some other way so i thought that was nuts i mean how can you draw if any of us tried to do 100 experiments and graduate from our phds we would (laughs) never have gotten through 100 (laughs) experiments but maybe not 100 uh, data collection points. Okay, like data points. Yeah. Although I'm pretty sure I did more than 102. <laughs> I, I definitely well, you know, did more than I think your definition of experiment's a little different than the okay. social science point definition. Taken, of point experiment. taken. I, yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. Right. One experiment by 200 data people. Points, yeah. that's, that's nuts. And the CDC is reporting statistics, you know, you know, spreading it over the entire nation after just categorizing for 100 hospitals. <laughs> that was. Poor, poor. Uh, someone gets someone should get an F for that. <laughs> That's an F report. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's such. Ch- I mean, the, yeah, it's a big challenge to try to to get it right and to try to collect data in a way that um, we can actually use and will be meaningful and that we can generalize to what the problem is in the country because it's not just estimating what when gun violence occurs and how many people died of, died of guns per year because that's important but you need to know information 
surrounding the gun violence incidents, right? You need to know um, who the perpetrator was, how many people were shot at one time, um, where the incident occurred, the time of day it occurred, if there was a fight proceeding, all these kinds of things that can help us better predict when gun violence will occur so that we can intervene um, before it does. And so if we don't have accurate data, that really poses a huge um, barrier there. So, I mean, it does seem like there, to me, that there's some difference in the types of agencies where this language is being inserted. And that, you know, we've namely talked about CDC and NIH. And these are areas that touch on gun violence as a public health issue. Um, whereas agencies that touch on gun violence more as a matter of safety or crime, it doesn't seem to be as limited. So, for example, the government, of course, is is very interested in um, gun violence due to terrorism, for example. And so it, I, I don't think it's as restricted at places like the National Institutes of Justice or even um, uh, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, funds has reports about mass shootings um, through the Secret Service that they do. And the FBI collects data on active shooter incidents and gun crimes um, as well. And so I think it does kind of depend on the lens through which we're looking at gun violence. Okay, I mean, I want to just, I just kind of want to comment in general about something. Um, so, all right, this may make me unpopular, but okay. Um, <laughs> I just want to convey slightly the other side just because this is a two-sided debate a little bit. Um, so the Dickey Amendment is, is, not, is not a ban, right? And, and we can absolutely agree that it might be being used as a stealth tactic to create a ban without actually saying it's a ban. At the same time, there is a concept, uh, specifically amongst people who support gun rights, that um, the government should not be in the business of advocating for the restriction of those rights, that that's not the government's role. Um, so on the face of it, if you just look at what the Dickey Amendment is saying, I think you know, if, if you don't agree with the stealth tactic approach, I don't believe that that's it's, it's really a stealth tactic. If you think, no, it's really just saying the government should not um, be involved in advocating for the restriction of rights, I think many people would go along with that. Um, maybe even some people who don't necessarily have guns or don't even necessarily support gun rights, but see it that way. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that there is, um, if you look at the debate going on in gun gun rights and what, what's the right thing to do, there is a lot of misinformation. Um, and I'll say, I'll say it from both sides, but um, definitely there is from the anti-gun or the you know, restriction of gun side, there, there have been many cases or at least some cases where things have been said that were not totally correct. And this makes people very paranoid and very worried about um, the use of research when you can't necessarily trust that it's going to be presented correctly or that it's going to or it's going to misrep misrepresent things. Um, I mean, you 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 mentioned uh, you um, you included like a Vox article, right? And I mean, so you can look at that and that and and as an example, I'll just give a quick example. So when people talk about guns, they usually will talk about uh, firearm deaths, but that is not the same thing as firearm homicides. And even when you say the word homicide, that's not the same thing as a gun murder. So if you say homicide, that includes justified homicides where you were del del deliberately defending yourself. Um, if you, uh, you know, if you thought there was something and so it becomes very tricky to actually properly, properly document what is going on statistically and really, you know, boil down. And again, like, as we talked about gun ownership, that is 
there's no there's no answer like we actually don't have a way of uh, quantifying that right now in any real way so uh, I'm just presenting the other side something that there is uh, I think some amount of justified worry that things could be misrepresented and that the federal government should not be getting into the middle of that yeah and this is I mean frankly this is like the core of what I was getting at earlier is that when we have like attacks on the facts uh, it makes it incredibly difficult to have a debate and discussion no, right. And, and the, the issue, though, is what are those facts? Because the, the terms are not quite like, for example, like what is a mass shooting? Like there are different definitions of that. And people can, you know, you can be talking about one thing and then you're actually talking about something else. Um, you know, it becomes extremely hard. And even things that you think, you know, like homicide, that doesn't actually mean what most people think it means. When they say you're homicide, they mean a criminal act, but it's not necessarily a criminal act. Act so um, it, it just it becomes really tricky, and then you know if you you know people try to extrapolate to uh, international, and they have different ways of categorizing things, um, and you know w- you know for example gun ownership right what does that really mean because in Switzerland as an example everyone from eighteen to I think thirty four has who's in the military has a gun in their home so they don't own the gun but they have a gun in their home. So, you know, these things get tricky and, and there's not necessarily a lot of um, transparency with some of these things. And, you know, people, you know, they can't go through every single data point, every single paper. So yeah. it's just something that people get worried about. Yeah. I mean, the government data isn't always accurate, right. which is a problem, it's, it's, right? Is that you, you, if you want to invest in gun violence research and you trust the government to collect the data, they might make mistakes. You know, we mentioned the Department of Education has... That, well, they overestimated it. And if you're right. a gun rights advocate, then you say, well, the government's trying to show that there's more gun violence than there is. And mm. you, you mean, that definitely could start kind of a conspiracy on that end. The government's inflating the data, I think, accidentally in this case. But, yes. you know, you could yes. see it potentially as yes. as on purpose if you're right. you're of a different. Um, yeah, if you're trying to make yeah. people mistrust government debt. Well, not, well, yeah, not even I mean, trying, but if you just are looking for ways that gun rights are being restricted and you're concerned about it, then um, that could be a, an evidence point that you yeah. use. Um, and similarly, the CDC data that they do have also shows uh, 538, the, the um, statistics analysis news website, has similarly posted an article showing that CDC data isn't always accurate because they're actually showing the, the CDC shows an upward trend in gun violence, whereas other sources of data are showing a downward trend. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you could look at that, and and if you wanted to, you could interpret it as the government over-inflating um, gun violence statistics. Um, yeah, so I can definitely see that point, that people are, are concerned about it. And, we, and it, I think it's a challenge, too, that there are a lot of sources of gun violence data within the government, but they all do use slightly different definitions. Even with mass shootings, some sources consider every shooting with four or more people shot. Um, some include the perpetrator in that four or more. Some do not. Some don't include it if it's related to gang violence um, or if it's related to domestic violence, for example. If you shoot you know, your wife and kids, then that doesn't count as a mass shooting based on some data. And so it, it's hard to, to be able to look at all these different data sets and check them against one another and to see who's accurate and who's not because they all have slightly different ways of looking at it. This sounds like they need an interagency work group on gun violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it just, 
there it doesn't sound like after all these years of observing gun violence again and again blasted over the airwaves into our eardrums and eyeballs there isn't a super strong interest from any particular agency to pin this down mm. and i think after reading all this i kind of was just like really annoyed you know that we are so harsh about scientists who really tried to get to some extent data pinned down or data standards pinned down or methodologies pinned down and there is not much interest in getting this methodology pinned down and it makes me mad whether it's whether it's a private foundation or from the public sector the government sector it's it's that that was that that was one of my main frustrations as i was going through all this analysis or, or reading yeah so something I want to I want to emphasize, uh, Sujata, is that like we created this government, we created the society, and so what it is doing is our fault. It, it it was, and in fact, it was mostly from deliberate choices, not just inertia. So um, the reason, for example, we don't have a good num- count on the number of guns owned in the U.S., like how many guns there are, is because people don't want us to know that. Like every other country who has a lot of guns keeps track of this. They have a registry. We have chosen not to have a registry. So it's like the I, we I, of which generation? Ben? Oh, absolutely. The we of which generation? Yeah. The one I, who well, has to every, do school shooting? <laughs> you know. Well, every generation picks to not do <laughs> to not have a registry. I mean, it's hopefully you know, our our generation, as we amass yeah. more power and influence, will change. Considering things, that but. the first half of the generation seems not to vote. Yeah. <laughs> It's really kind of the same generation again and again, or yeah, same yeah. same uh, same uh, demographic, I guess, again and again. Yeah. But but like I think it's really important to always remember. Like these are really frustrating discussions, but it, it's not just because like they're unsolvable. It's because we chose to make it this way. And how do we unchoose? Well, for, well, to answer some of these questions, we could just like fund more gun research. We could have a registry. We could like yeah. I mean, these are solvable. These are solvable problems. Well, all right. I, I, I'm not. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> all right. Here, here's, what here say, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. I mean, I, I, what, what you have described is correct in that there is a, a very strong cultural aspect to our condition with situation with guns, um, but that comes from a very long tradition, uh, which starts from our founding and even before that, um, and it's right there in our constitution um, that we can have guns. So. So is my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> That's true. No but one's but of course, that. it doesn't That's say. The first one. <laughs> actually, well, technically speaking, your right to life, liberty, and technically it should be property are actually not in the Constitution. They're in the Declaration of Independence, oh, yeah. which it was actually an illegal document when it was written. That's right. But um, but you are correct. You do have a right to life, liberty, and property as well. You do have those things. Um, but uh, the point is that we do have a very strong cultural. Um, Enforce or influence against that. Um, you know, we here on the East Coast, I think, have a slightly different viewpoint than if you went down to the Deep South or into the, you know the mountain ranges. Um, so, I'm I'm not sure how easy it would be. Let me just put it that way. I think that there are some very strong multi generational uh, viewpoints that uh, don't plan on shifting anytime soon, and they happen to have a lot of guns. Yeah, that's so. true. And, and maybe maybe I misspoke. I, what I really what I meant is it, the fixes to this problem are simple to envision, yes. but they are certainly very very difficult to implement. Yes, at one hundred percent. Yeah, frankly, like climate change, like the fix is very simple to implement. Just like stop putting more carbon in the atmosphere. Very simple. It's very <laughs> difficult to do. Yes. Execution. Execution yeah. is always hard.
to defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away. I want to say those fighting words from my cold, dead hands. Uh, also, I want to respond to a point you made earlier, though, about the, when, when you were presenting the devil's advocate argument to the Dickey Amendment, which was the argument put forward by certain gun rights activists that the government uh, shouldn't be advocating for things. Uh, which shouldn't be advocating for the restriction of rights. That's, shouldn't that's be advocating for the restriction of rights. Yes. Sure. I think uh, uh, under a... Um, Except if you're in <laughs> one particular gender. Yeah. <laughs> What do you mean? So, no, it's exactly what I was going to... What do you mean? Exactly. Like, for a very shallow analysis, that seems reasonable. Like, oh, yeah, the government shouldn't be advocating your strict rights, but they do it all the time. They do it all the... Whether it's, uh, you know, trying to advocate to restrict abortion, which the government does a ton of, whether it's, like, trying to advocate that people don't smoke or drink, which every single government agency and, like, elected official will advocate for that. You don't... And you certainly have the right to smoke or drink. Wait, okay, but all right, I need to... Okay, so hold on. So... If you're going to talk about, um, we're not going to go into abortion right now, but the, <laughs> no, that's, that's the other side says <laughs> restricting rights of certain genders. Okay, well, no, but they, and also there's people who are trying to restrict a, um, a, a man or uh, who identifies as a woman to use a certain bathroom. Like you know, you can interpret your yeah, comment broadly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, marriage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So the government is All doing right, a lot I, of this kind of advocacy, in my view. Uh, all right, I'll disagree a little bit. Uh, I mean, just with the overarching premise, just because the people, I mean, if we're going to talk about abortion very quickly, uh, they would Why say... Why are you pointing at me again? Well, he brought it up. You said gender, <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll put it together. You guys together <laughs> brought, came, came up with it. All right, there we go. There was a high five there, if you guys can hear it. What I will simply say is that the uh, people who are against abortion will say that it is not a right in the first place. So... If you were to say that that government is advocating against rights, they'll say, well, it's not a right in the first place, so they're not advocating against any right because it's not a right in the first place. That's just a response. You can disagree. That's fine. I'm just, this is the other side. And then for the smoking and the drinking thing, the government is not trying to take away people's rights. That's right. To yeah. smoke and drink. They're simply saying it's a bad idea. Yeah. That's different than, actually than, than actually taking away your right to buy a gun, which is what some people would say is what the government will try to do. But they did yeah. take the, that right away for a while. They completely prohibited Oh, no, 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 right? but they had to pass an amendment to do that. True. The, the, yeah. Well, that was, no, no, okay. right. So that was a whole thing to pass an amendment to actually do it because the, the, the government could not just willy-nilly do that. Well, like they did for, eight, for people under 21. Yeah. How is, how is that? I actually don't know how that law is in, in place. I don't know. It's it's insane how that law is in place. Actually, uh, it's so, <laughs> okay. I'm sure it is. It's I absolutely mean, insane. So I mean, the drinking the drinking age is tied to highway funding. So right the, on. the, like the federal government it. can't. For I don't know why they can't. They can't set a, a, a law to d- dictate the drinking age. But somebody in the, the federal government decided that they wanted to, and so they what they did was they said states were not going to give you highway funding if you don't set the drinking age in your state to be 21. And all the states like they're oh, really so neat. it's not a federal law then. It's That's a, right. It's a state law. Well, the states can do yeah. that. Yes, yeah. the states can do all kinds of things that the federal yeah. government can't do. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's a loophole. Yes, but I mean, let's just be fair here, okay? The the government, it's the federal government is not advocating for taking away your right to to drink and smoke. Yeah, I'm just I mean, saying we can go down the line, but they're, they're not taking it, but they are definitely advocating for it to not drink and smoke. Yeah. Well, well, they're just saying it's a bad idea. I mean, well, listen, I, and you can say, look, I mean, look, if you want to say the government shouldn't be doing that either, I mean, fine, go ahead. I'm just, I'm just, I mean, just to keep it centered on 
advocating yeah. re- restricting well, rights. A counterpoint without going further down to this road. a little bit is that the government does not. I'm, I'm I'm talking about state governments in this instance. State governments aren't necessarily pulling cigarettes out of um, convenience stores, for example, and taking them out of your homes or anything like that. They're not taxing them. Yeah, grabbing them from you on the street, but they do design uh, choice architecture, let's Mm -hmm. say, to try to disincentivize people from buying cigarettes. So they Mm -hmm. make it more expensive. They do things like make the age 18. So there's... And then 21. Yeah, and then then 24. And then... Potentially. Like Hawaii's doing. And we we do things like change the age because we know that it's more addictive the younger you are. And so, you know, you can do evidence-based policy in that way to try to disincentivize things that are are bad. So they're not necessarily Mm -hmm. directly restricting it, but they can implement ways to disincentivize people from doing things that are bad for their health. The states, absolutely, yes. Yes. I was just saying, we should bring it back to this. (laughs) We've got a little off of guns, but way, way out in the field. I think it's relevant. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the gun debate and what to do, even about research, you know, it, it comes down, though, to two very different philosophies on life in general and the role of government and, you know, rights and all those. I think, I mean, I do think there's, there is a very strong philosophical disagreement that comes out in terms of like, just what kind of research can you do? Yeah. So I think, I think it's relevant. No, and I think it, I, I agree also. It's like a really interesting philosophical divide. I just don't take it seriously at all because like none of the people, ad- <laughs> basically zero of the people advocating for these uh, viewpoints are consistent at all in their application to other aspects. For example, abortion. For example, uh, you know, homosexual marriage, these kind of things. So it's just like almost everybody who's pushing this narrative is full of shit. We're gonna have to cut. <laughs> all that. right, I, <laughs> all right, I have to disagree with that. I think on both okay. sides there can be a little bit of hypocrisy <laughs> on, in how you're gonna. If it if it supports your viewpoint, then you want to implement it, right? Laura's <laughs> like okay, Laura's a referee, and I'm sitting here eating popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I will will disagree for the record, and that will be that. That maybe liberals want to restrict rights in in taking away guns, but they don't want to restrict rights in these other areas, and that's hypocritical, too. So it it goes both ways. That was a very (laughs) well-phrased argument. But yeah, I mean, I think that that Asa makes a good point in general, that people are concerned about what the government will do with this data, potentially, if it restricts their rights or not. And, you know, there may be reasons that we shouldn't trust the government data based on the the accuracy points that we've seen. I, I don't know what a good solution to this is. It would help, I think, if governments had sort of, if there was a way to coordinate agencies in deciding who's researching what and how we're defining things and if there's ways to kind of cross-check the data. But I don't think an interagency gun violence working group is going to come up anytime soon based on the political um, optics of that. What is something CDC does well? What is something the CDC does well? Yeah. Response, response <laughs> yeah. to I mean, yeah. epidemics. Yeah, epidemics. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's their bread and butter. So yeah. that's what they do. I feel like they're yeah, they're pretty on top of that. I, I don't know, like rabies or. Uh, yeah, I mean, they I collect mean, data I mean, yeah. on like every type of injury. Yeah, right? I, yeah, and we have. I mean, there are many diseases that are reported. So if you have a case of rabies, as an example, you're going to notify yeah the CDC and probably the state, the not the State Department, your state health department. Um, I mean, yeah, so. I mean, things like that are kind of well established, and you know. You're, but you're also talking about very specific things that doctors know about. It's like I know I got this positive test. Moving on, you know, this is a way more murkier subject. But um, yeah, and I, yeah. I, I do want to just kind of be careful that we're not portraying all government research. 
uh, that we're not portraying all government research on this topic as, as flawed just because of the Department of Education or CDC has been found by two news outlets to maybe be a little bit flawed. There's, you know, we mentioned there's a lot of agencies, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, for example, also collects data on this. And and the people that do collect this data are, are I think, very careful in how they do it and how they word questions. And at least for the Bureau of Justice Statistics, they, they do a, a crime victimization survey, which is how they get data on gun violence is by asking victims of crime. Um, and they spend years developing survey questions and everything has to get approved. And so it is a very careful process. Um, but, you know, errors can get through or you might not even realize you have a blind spot in the data um, that you're missing without kind of being able to cross check it. And maybe maybe ways to go are trying to do what Sujata mentioned of, of funding private resources or just, you know, I mean, resources have come up like the gun violence archive that I mentioned earlier. And so you could look at those and say, well, government doesn't need to be involved at all. Maybe there's not really a place for this. And maybe you can do this research without government funding is an argument that could be made. Well, I would say also on top of that is um, before, I mean, not before, but I think concurrently at the very least, when trying to establish, because you're right, I mean, the, the research itself is... I don't want to say it's a mess, but it is. It's it's very hard to really be sure that you're correct about what you're saying. And you know, we have seen errors in government data and other data. Um, but the other question was kind of. I'm not bringing it back to the original conversation here that we had, but that what are we going to do with it? Yeah. And um, you know, what what is the endpoint, and what are we looking to understand fully? Right. And there are definitely things like you know, predicting mass shootings and things of that sort. 100. percent um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't think that many people on right or left would, would be opposed to the idea of funding research to understand, better predict, and have better um, responses to, to mass shootings to prevent them. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone would disagree with that. Um, you know, many point, many people point to the Parkland shooting because I think there were around 31 reports to the police or something about this guy that he was making threatening comments. He had guns. There were pictures of him on Facebook with posing with an AR-15. Um, you know, and then on top of that, you know, uh, well, we don't have to get into that. The the, the cop thing who just got arrested because he didn't do anything. Um, but the point is that you know people look at that and see that as a failure of government. That you know, what more do you want? The only thing he didn't do was come to the police and say, "I'm going to shoot this school. I'm going to shoot up this school at this time and this day." So um, I think that, I mean I, I think it just needs to be more clear what we want to do with our research and what's the end goal and then I think that would open a lot of doors. Yeah, I mean that's a that's definitely an argument I think as well like you mentioned for at least having places like the FBI or DHS yeah. maintain this kind of data because they're in the position to actually do something about right. it. Exactly. Whereas the Gun Violence Archive is not in the position to track specific people or to implement policy in response to an incident immediately. And so the government can well we might not think of the government can potentially be a little bit more nimble if they already have the data than if they're getting it from an outside source. I mean, I think so. One thing to remember, too, in this discussion is it, gun violence is highly polarized. Maybe it's the most polarizing we could think of almost. And in highly polarized uh, debates, um, there is this unfortunate result that more information doesn't doesn't change minds. Um, uh, th- this is the Cultural Cognition Project out of Yale, for example, has shown over and yeah, over and over again. We've dropped this before yeah. in a previous <laughs> pod. I, I, yeah, I think it's one of the most important. I think it's one of the most important projects for people in science policy to be aware of. 
that more data and more facts doesn't actually really help debate that much, frankly. So if the question is, what does more gun violence research and data do for the debate? The answer is nothing. <laughs> if the question is, what is more violent, more, more data and research do for our, for the government's ability to nimbly respond, to better predict, to do that kind of stuff, that's a different discussion. But it's not going to change the debate. Well, okay, so I, I will respond to that a little bit. So I, I'm going to use the example of medicine for a moment here. So, um, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again because it's worth mentioning. Um, so, you know, for, for years, for decades, you know, doctors had this idea that you go into a patient's room and you, you bash their head over with facts and you're gonna tell them why you are wrong about how you're living and you just go home and fix your life and everything will be fine. And it turns out that that doesn't work, right? That you can show them as many facts and graphs and like, no, you will die in 10 years mm -hmm. if you don't stop eating cheeseburgers every day. And you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna go home, get a cheeseburger, crack a beer and have a good time. What, so, so, so there were new ways, so people um, came up with new ways of talking to patients, which uh, things like motivational interviewing, and there's like a trans theoretical um, model of change, and there's all kinds of things of that sort, um, which talk about how do you talk to people, and how do you convey facts that matter to them, and get them to you know, incorporate what they've learned into their actual daily life, as opposed to just being like, no. So um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what, facts have been presented when it comes to the guns. Um, but the, fir the first question I have to ask is, does this address why people have guns and why do they believe that people should have the right to have guns? Um, I have seen many statistics thrown around that for someone who believes that they have a right to have guns, it's important to have guns, and that they have the right to self-defense and take down the government and whatever else, these facts don't really address that. They, I mean, they're they're good if you already don't agree with having guns, then they're great arguments. But if you don't agree with that assessment, then they kind of just go past you. Um, so, when looking at these facts, I think it's also important to consider how someone else will will take that into account. So, I, I, what, what I want to say is that, I, you know, I'm not even sure what facts you want to present. I, I, I really don't know. I think having more data and having more instruments at your disposal to consider the gun debate is a great thing and should be done. But you, at the same time, you have to consider who you're talking to and why people still want to have guns. And that you know, the truth is that may be an impossible discussion. I'm not saying I'm not saying I don't have an answer to you. I, I really don't. Um, but this is at least something that would make I think both sides more understanding of each other at the very least. And you know who knows that can lead to somewhere. government is really good at is making sure our health is kind of taken care of, or at least they pay attention when it has to do with health. And I think that this is one of the strategies that a lot of the gun uh, violence, uh, what's the word, like activism around gun violence it has tried to do is make it about public health. I mean, let's just think about it. Like the EPA, the even DOE's uh, efforts Department for of Department of Energy's efforts for energy, uh, sorry, efforts for reducing 
um, the chemical exposure of you know the contaminated sites, and EPA's Environmental Protective Agency. I mean, they 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 came about because of public health kind of emergencies, right? These data are very well standardized, very well understood. They're even specific about the exact tools that they use to measure at different places uh, around the nation when they're collecting this health-related pollution data or stream pollution or soil erosion or whatever the data is. So when you make it about public health, it seems like you know these are things that get standardized, that get attention. And I think that's what currently what the activism groups are really pushing towards, that this is a health issue. This is a health crisis in the nation that guns are, you know, the disease. Many people would dis- would be hesitant to use the idea of guns as a public health crisis simply because uh, the idea is, and I, mean, I, I mean, I've read this, that people say that anyone who wants to have a gun is innately crazy. And I will disagree. I don't think people wanting to have a gun is crazy, but that is definitely something that's been promulgated around. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Okay, the, right. You know, for my grandmother's safety, I considered it at one point. Yeah, okay, no, but so, I never got one. Right. Okay. So, so there are definitely health-related issues with guns. I think the biggest one is suicides, which accounts for mm-hmm. the vast majority of firearm deaths uh, in, in this country. I think it's around two-thirds of firearm deaths are because of suicide. Doing research into preventing suicides is, I think, something that anyone would agree with, regardless of who you are. What would make people a little cautious would be is if this was going to be used now to start taking away people's guns without you know, due process and things of that sort. Um, so while there's absolutely a public, I'm sorry, while there's absolutely a health component to guns, saying that guns in and of themselves are a public health crisis or emergency would make very many people uncomfortable. I think I'm not, I'm not necessarily arguing for that. I'm just pointing out that I think to get the government to focus on it as heavily as they might focus on radiation exposure is what the argument is, right? To standardize the way we collect data on it so that we can actually make those uh, you know, the understanding more clear. Right. No, I just, but at the same time, I think it's very important that the argument be phrased in a truly correct manner without any possibility of interpretation, which is a very hard thing to do because the moment you start talking about guns themselves being a public health crisis, you're going to get an enormous amount of pushback from people who want to prevent all research. And if we agree that we would like to do some research, but we have to know how it's going to be used and what it's going to be good for that requires a lot of finesse and saying statements like, so here's, here's my problem is that the gun, the gun control advocates do say things like guns are a public health crisis. They are trying to phrase frame guns as a whole. And that is automatically going to get an enormous amount of pushback from the other side. So you can go down that road. And I mean, it's basically just a, you know, cultural civil war, or you can try to thread it somewhere in the middle. Um, that's that's my cautionary note. That's. I don't know. I think that as much as we try to say, oh, these are the reasons people want to have guns, there's a lot of just unbalanced enforcement of laws towards particular races, towards particular people. Um, 
I don't think it's really about, I don't think it's about, I have a right to have a gun. I think it's about a particular gender and race that's allowed to have a gun and everybody else. And, and it's about authority. I really do because I've, uh, I've stopped interacting with some of my friends who have said things like, oh, I saw this black kids walking behind me and I immediately put my hand on my gun. They were just kids and it was late at night and they probably were just walking. I don't even have that idea in my head that because two young people of a particular race are walking behind me that I need to somehow now, you know, steady myself and get ready to like, that doesn't even make any sense to me what this person said. And when they said this to me, I, I decided, I was like, I don't think I need this person in my life anymore. And, 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 but it always stays in the back of my mind when we have these gun conversations that there's just unbalanced enforcement of what people call rights. It's completely, I mean, we've all seen the Facebook video of the guy who's completely allowed to, who has a concealed carry or whatever. Talk about Philando Castile. No, no. Well, Philando Castillo, oh, that's a whole other thing. But no, the guy who's walking around with a rifle and he's a black man. And because he's walking around with a rifle and he's allowed to walk around with his rifle, Mm -hmm. right? But because he's black, a whole bunch of police people come and stop, right? And he's just walking. He's not acting in any particularly threatening way other than carrying this rifle. Whereas all these white Second Amendment protesters who walk around with their assault rifles like, are like totally welcome anywhere. Like the ones who do it on college campuses yep. mm-hmm. to purposefully intimidate, right? And they actually market it online. Hey, come and do this on this campus to purposefully intimidate because they're trying to take away our guns. Mm-hmm. Our meaning us white men. Yeah. But Not it's, everybody. But it, and it's even worse than, than that uh, black man with the rifle getting harassed by the police. It's like when it's like so frequently when police even think that a black man has a gun, they get shot and frequently killed. Like, yeah. And, and in cases like like Philando Castile, where he did actually legally have a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the gun rights closed it. Yeah. Can, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you told that. That's right. Oh. He did everything right. Yeah. No, and you mentioned we mentioned Tamir Rice earlier, which is just one of the most incredible. Like, yeah. Incredibly tragic. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. I so just, that that yeah that's that, sure that is important the, to remember it's not rights. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure if the rights argument is is valid. Yeah. It, because it's not uniformly applied and it's not uniformly supported. Right? It, it's so so you know. Yeah, it's not a right. It's a privilege that a certain class of people has. Yes, and that's what it, that when, right. when we were talking earlier about certain things being banned. It's like what are we talking about? There's always it's always a power game and it's always a particular group that is in power enforcing something on another group that has slightly less or they want to make sure they remind them that they have less power. And and I think that's where some of, you know, the 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 main impetus for making this a government run uh, research project of, of understanding gun violence and collecting the data, I think is because even private foundations have their blind spots. Mm-hmm. And for some, you know, to, to, to some extent, the general population feels like, hey, we all pay taxes into this. You know, the government has to do it correctly. And we can go and, you know, vote people out or whatever we're going to do. The freedom of Information Request. Freedom of yeah. Information Act <laughs> request. Surveys, exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, because we feel like we have leverage, we as in, um, I'm, you know, speaking as a, as a citizen of the United States, we have a little bit more push or leverage or something we can do in courts or other things to 
force the government to do things, whereas a private foundation, we can't. And while maybe we, you know, the ones that we're going to talk about soon are doing good work, maybe, or at least we can see the work that they're doing and they're going back and checking sources and validating it. I think still as a citizenry, we're like, look, whether we like it or not, maybe the government shouldn't advocate for X, Y, or Z, but we want to see the numbers and we want to see the data. We want to see what it says. And they're the ones who we can at least hold their feet to the fire to get it right. And I think that's partly why, you know, going after a particular agency or department of education, let's say, or CDC and saying, hey, fix your numbers. There's something wrong. And I think that's where the journalists are really trying to go. Fix your numbers. Like, show us the numbers. Don't tell me that, oh, because it was a year ago, you can't fix it anymore. That's nonsense. Fix the numbers. There's so many layers to this, right, that that it's not just simply my rights or our rights. And speaking from that standpoint, yeah. I just I'm not sure I buy it. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to go with the rights argument, you should argue that maybe the government should collect data to make sure that everybody has the right equally, right? And so there's a way to um, to talk about government data as sort of protecting these rights, right? If you want to make sure that everybody can have access to guns that wants to, then, you know, then there's data for that too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> if it's evenly applied, at least. Yeah. yeah. And then one of the other things that, that is, uh, you know, I do a lot of advocacy for, um, you know, fighting against domestic domestic violence, and you know now it's referred to as intimate partner violence. There's not a lot of stats on women and gun violence, and that is actually something that's highly correlated. That that you know, if there's a gun in the home, and that person or that group of people, and, and the women can also be the perpetrator of violence. So if there's a gun in the home, it's more likely that someone's going to get shot. If there's also a, you know, I don't know what they call this in statistics. I guess uh, additive kind of additive uh, statistics or whatever it is that there's a more probability, there's a higher probability that someone's going to get shot and they're going to die. Right. Or, or, and I just, these are things that are highly correlated. There's even what I was super surprised about is when I was reading through research on intimate partner violence and I was looking at, Oh, there's certain personality traits that are associated with, you know, in this case it was mostly males that perpetrate violence. And it was like narcissistic personality you know, uh, people who have mood swings and have high suspicion and jealousy. Then I went and read a Secret Service research report on, um, what was it called? Specifically, it was called uh, Investigative Themes for uh, Predicting These Massive Gun Violence Events. Mass attacks. Mass attacks. That's what it was called. Yes. Thank you, Laura. And the investigative themes included paranoia. (laughs) <laughs> narcissistic behavior, you know, self-centeredness. And I was like, hmm, these two were completely separate papers. One was an, you know, NCBI research paper on health psychology, and the other was analyzing uh, sh- the shooters of these 28 violent massive attacks from 2017. So I was just thinking to myself, like, why are these not talked about in the same paper at the same time? And, and, it's you know I'm, I'm i'm smiling and sort of laughing at a frustration but it's a problem and this is why we need that interagency or some sort of data standards or methodology standards for gun violence these all have to be included in those in those numbers and that's the only way we're going to not just maybe not curb the rights of everybody but certainly if someone has a history of of violence right they need to not be able to access guns and this, you know, goes right into the current legislation that's, I think, still being held up in in Congress, the um, d- 
defending violence against women act. I can't think of their name. I'm, I'm sorry, my blood's boiling a little bit, so I'm, I'm having trouble <laughs> thinking straight. <laughs> turn to what we're going to discuss this week at happy hour. Um, Ben, do you want to start us off? I will. So I'm going to tell a story about NASA's budget in three parts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Strap in people. NASA's 2020 budget, in fact, to be more precise. So to begin, uh, NASA submitted their budget request. Uh, wait, wait, you have to start with once upon a time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once upon a time. Yes. OMB uh, submitted the president's uh, budget request. Oh, my God. I'm already <laughs> <laughs> It was a very successful bedtime story. Yeah, gather your kids around the podcast. <laughs> no, I'll quietly walk out the room and shut the light off. <laughs> So, as I was saying, um, OMB submitted the president's budget request, uh, which included NASA's budget request, which was like a totally normal NASA budget. Uh, they asked for a small increase um, to do the normal stuff that they were doing, which is they were going to Mars and they were going to the moon and normal NASA stuff. Uh, a few NASA di- stuff. <laughs> so that's part one. Part two is a few days later, Vice President Pence announces that the U.S. is going to land on the moon by 2024. Now, that's at least <laughs> four years before NASA had even, in their wildest dreams, hoped that they would uh, put a, st- a lunar station around the moon. Forget about putting boots on the moon. Uh, but so Pence says, uh, we're going to the moon in 2024. And everybody, all this, all the space uh, policy a- analysts, all the watchers, including myself, were like, okay, well, that we, they don't have the money to do that. That's insane. We're, and like, how are they going to do that? And NASA said that too. And NASA, in fact, said, we are, we're going to submit a new budget request because we can't possibly do this with the budget you have. So if you really want to go to the moon by 2024, we'll do a new budget. And so they say, we'll get a supplemental budget uh, uh, submitted uh, in a few weeks. A month and a half later, um, NASA actually gets their supplemental budget, uh, and it is for $1.6 billion extra. Now, $1.6 billion is a lot of money. I, I'd happily take it. But it is uh, about 10, maybe 20 times less than what they actually need to, to if they were going to get to the moon in 2024. So this $1.6 billion pisses everybody off. Um, it's, you know, it's like too much for the fiscal conservatives, and it's not nearly enough for any of the space supporters, and it's just garbage. Everybody's really unhappy about it. But what? But NASA, like, they really doubled down. They're going to the moon in 2024, and I, they're going to somehow make it work on the shoestring budget, and they, they, like, do all this great stuff. Administrator Brian Stein, in my opinion, does a really great job uh, turning the whole agency on a dime to get to the moon so quickly. They launched the Artemis project. I hope everybody's heard of Artemis. It's Apollo's sister, Artemis. And, uh, and so Brian Stein's line is, uh, we're going to return a man to the moon and put the first woman on the moon. It's Artemis. It's great. Then, uh, a few days later, uh, we get a presidential uh, declaration, uh, a.k.a. tweet, uh, which I'm just going to read you. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Donald, uh, at real Donald Trump tweets, for all the money we are spending, we are spending, NASA should not be talking about going to the moon. We did that 50 years ago. They should be focused on the much bigger things we are doing, including Mars, parentheses, of which the moon is a part, end parentheses, comma, defense and science, exclamation mark. Question mark, question mark, question mark in response. So that's a, that's that's the third part of NASA's budget is uh, Trump uh, just completely blowing up the entire thing uh, with a ridiculous tweet where he says the Mars is uh, w- Mars of which the moon is a part. Very confusing statement. 
my chatter this week is something I'm very proud of. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal was the first South Asian American to preside over the House this week, and I was super excited about this. Um, I was decided, I was thinking, I want to do more research. Who else? You know, what are the other firsts? So I actually looked up the first black American, African American to preside over the House, and that was Joseph Rainey, and it was in 1874. Oh, so wow. uh, that I thought was pretty amazing, fascinating. I think that's around like the 41st Congress or something like mm-hmm. that. So I was looking up the numbers and the history about that. In addition, I was like, okay, there's got to be a connection here. Right? So there's got to be an Asian connection here. So <laughs> he actually opposed legislation restricting the influx of Asian immigrants to the United States way back in 1874. Nice. And this... You know, just it, it, it's in Cleveland, so I, I'm from Cleveland, I said earlier, there is a monument to uh, Mahatma Gandhi, and it's Aunt Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. And this is something that we really talk a lot about in Cleveland. One, because my mom had a big role in helping to create this garden and this monument. But I always think that I, I'm very appreciative to the African Americans of in America because they fought hard actually for civil rights and that allowed a lot of Asian Americans to be in this country and to succeed in this country. So this, you know, looking up this detail about Joseph Rainey was really nice for me and I really appreciated it and, you know, and now I get kind of a double celebration that Pramila J. Paul is now the first South Asian American that got to preside over the house. So that was, that's my chatter and I'm really proud of that. I'm really excited for my maybe one day run for Congress or the or the Senate. We'll see. Uh, so what are you going to be talking about this week at Happy Hour? Uh, all right. Well, I have nothing as weighty as, as, as these, <laughs> these kinds of issues, things. But my thing is weighty from a physical perspective. So haha. I like that. There you go. See? <laughs> I like that there, a lot. There you, you know, go. there's some research showing that physical weight correlates with how much uh, mental weight you assign something. That's really? Important. So, yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay. Well, this is, well, I, no, this is not. But I mean, this is just for fun. So this is also a NASA story, but it is uh, happier or at least more um, whimsical. So NASA has just started, or at least they, and they've recently started, um, a project named... Oh, come on. It was something named after a nymph in Greek mythology. I don't know what. I don't remember exactly what it is. But basically, there is an asteroid um, in the asteroid belt that um, is very different, very unique from other asteroids because most asteroids are made out of just rock and ice. This one is made almost entirely out of uh, nickel and iron. Hmm. So what they think is that this is a exposed protoplanet core that was basically demolished what? by like meteor strikes and asteroid strikes until basically all you have left is like the Nougaty Center <laughs> that's just sitting there and they're going to say... Is it made of cheese? No, it's made out of nickel and iron. <laughs> but apparently... And cheese. And cheese. Well, we can only hope and in the middle. They're going to drill in the, They're going to drill all the way through, hopefully. But um, yeah, so they're going to send a probe there in like 2025. So it will go parallel with the moon, Mars... Uh, landers, 
you know, together. They will they will go together as a fleet. Twofer. A two for one. All they, in that one point six yes. billion dollars. You know, it may even be like a single launch that then separates. Yeah. You know, they yeah. separate and go in different trajectories. Oh, interesting. But the point is that uh, that is happening. So that's 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 my story. That's so cool. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it just sounded cool. it just sounded very cool that you can like have a plan and then just demolish it and there's the middle. Yeah. So yeah. Oh. I liked it. Sorry yeah. to jump on this one. I'm surprised you didn't. No, jump in real quick. <laughs> Can't <Yes>. help himself. <laughs> so most asteroids are that. That's why we want to mine asteroids for rare earth metals. Is that when you form these liquidy nougaty centers, all the heavy elements go to the center of the planet. Oh really? And then in this, you know, in the early solar system, there were hundreds of different planetoids that were all molten with all the heavy stuff in the center, and they blow apart. And then most of asteroids are pieces. So that's why they're mostly metallic. Yeah. No, no, but like but this one is unique, though. Why is it just because it's because it's size? I, I mean, it is. Unique, but the existence of heavy metals wouldn't make it unique. They're, they're no, they have exclusively. That I think that was the issue. That it's, it's so maybe it's just complete. higher purity than. Other yeah, that's yeah. all right. I don't know, but that you was, know what it might have been. It might have been a fragment from a larger planetoid, so you get a better be. purification. That way, it could be. It's yeah, like I a longer know. column in your HPLC. Yeah, there you go. Chromatography. Nerds. It's right. I'm proud of it. <laughs> okay, well, I'm also going to geek out about science this week and my happy hour chatter. So um, I will caveat this with I found out about this because it's partially NSF funded, um, but I have nothing to do with this funding. So <laughs> uh, it's not a conflict of interest. Um, so the Washington Post this week um, published an article by Sarah Kaplan and photos by Bonnie Jo Mount about our... Um, expedition into the Arctic, this international Ooh, expedition yes. that they'll be doing um, for a year-long um, trip, basically. So the, the article itself, I highly recommend reading it. Um, it's got beautiful pictures in it, which is why I credited the photographer. Um, and so basically they'll be going, a team of researchers from all different countries will be going up to the Arctic um, to do research. And what they're going to be doing is um, they'll be in a ship and they're planning to kind of, when they get to a certain point, cut the engine of the ship and kind of get frozen within the ice and follow the ice drift for a year and, <laughs> and do research and, you know, get ice cores. And um, I don't know what the, all they do up there, but um, yeah, it should be really interesting. And the article was, was great. It just, it, it describes the process that they're going through now of preparing um, to be on this ship and they'll be kind of not everybody will be there for a year they're doing like two month stents and so they also have to figure out how to resupply the ship and trade people off and there are some people that will be up there when there's going to be no sunlight at all for two months so it's kind of this really um intense so they're going to be on like industrial experience. strength vitamin d and yeah <laughs> exactly some sun lamps going um but you know there's there's stuff like even they have to get gun training um in order to fend polar off bears? like polar bears potentially yeah and there's like a three mile Don't wide electric the fence bears, around them just tranquilize them move them to another yeah i think it's more of like extreme situations yeah like, yeah they're having a, i mean their ice is melting this is like one of the they're i mean the article also it's kind of depressing because it talks about how the ice in the arctic is going away yeah. and so this may be like one of the only times that they have to do this research um, but yeah it's really cool and, and and it's also interesting since they're just going with the ice flow they have a sort of route that they're trying to aim for but we'll see where they end up and it could be potentially really dangerous if they end up going the wrong way then they could end up somewhere where they can't be rescued um, or if they end up in like Russian waters for example they can't collect data so it, yeah it's very complicated and um, and yeah, very intense research process. A lot more than my sending out surveys in my lab <laughs> in graduate school. 
Well, that does it for this episode. Please subscribe to Beltway Science on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us with feedback and topic requests to beltwayscience at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Ben Zalisco and Magna Chandra. Ipor si muave, and thanks for listening. You know, there are sci-fi horror movies that start this way. <laughs> that just, <laughs> yeah, I, that too, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Abandoned Lab. And yeah, I mean, they everywhere. said this is only, like, maybe two other times that ships have done this where everybody lived and, like, followed the ice. So no, it's, yeah. I, I'm it's ter- this is yeah. a scary-sounding experiment. Like, yeah, ice is a lot of force. Yeah. You know, what if they could push yeah. up against a glacier and the glacier falls on them, like... This is dangerous. Yeah, it is. It is. Right. I'm sure. I'm not sure what precautions they've. T- I mean, they're doing a lot of training now, and I'm not sure exactly when the mission starts. I believe this fall, or maybe in the end of summer. Like, what's their emergency escape? Like, ice skate away? Like, uh, <laughs> 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 Cross country skis up there. I don't know. I mean, they have. Yeah, they'll have these re-up mission, like you know, yeah. trips to bring in supplies and stuff. So, so there must be a way are. that yeah. they can be reached, or theoretically. But if it goes the wrong way, then it could go. As long as Matt Damon is not on the thing, which will necessitate a rescue mission, it'll be fine. (laughs) He's been rescued more times. I think they they did like the math. Yeah, they did like some math that like he has been rescued more times in Hollywood than like like if you count like like he was in Mar like the Mission to Mars or something. The Martian. No, No, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, he was in the Martian. The Martian. Yes, I'm sorry. The Martian, Saving Private Ryan, and he's in a couple others. I think like he keeps needing to be rescued. That's like his thing. Yeah, Ninja uh, Seller, too. That's what I was thinking. That's right, yeah. Ninja Seller. <laughs> yes, that's right. And then he, like, you yes. know, kill, tries to kill everybody. But, you know, that's... that's, that's like make him the worst action star. Billions have been spent saving that demon. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. So.
<laughs> I don't think he'll be on the show. Good. All right. Thank God. <laughs> well, for sure, not now. <laughs> <laughs> we just reminded him Forever. why not. He'll be in the <laughs> documentary. I'll tell the Office of Polar Programs to double check. <laughs> so. He'll come and do a photo op. He'll get messed up. <laughs> he's a he's a clean water advocate. Like he does a lot of advocacy oh, yeah. for clean he water. Oh yeah, he does a ton. And like that's not unrelated to ICE. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chemically, did, very similar. Did anyone watch that uh, that, that minimize me or what was it called? Oh, Downsize. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. But I mean, I felt like that was like him, his like little like Hollywood sustainability push. It wasn't about <laughs> clean water, but I mean, they do try to be like pretty, you know, the whole point is like, you know, then you take up many few resources and you don't have to have as much money and all this stuff. But it is, I thought it was pretty funny that his wife didn't minimize with him or whatever, <laughs> downsize with him. <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not I feel sure like you should watch that time. movie on a big screen TV. I guess it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the Matt Damon's normal size. Yeah, on the big screen TV. It's okay. You can feel well, you, free to record a new one, though. You can do the Welcome to Beltway Science. Yeah, where we, yeah that's it. Yeah. That's what I do. You just said Welcome to Beltway Science and then our names. Yeah. Can you say in the towel fort? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Broadcasting from the towel, from the towel fort. Yeah. Straight into your ears. <laughs>